0: All right, good morning. We'll dismiss the kiddos to the back. Who are they following back there? There we go, Mr. Brad, Mr. Jason. While they're doing that, let me invite uh, those of you who are, brought your Bible with you today to open up to John chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, let me encourage you, if you have an app to look at it, find some way to track along with us. I would never want you just to accept what I'm saying but let's see it in God's Word. Let's read it together. In John chapter 1, starting in verse 19, we're going to look at John the Baptist. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Then they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him then, why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across from Jordan where John was baptizing. And the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself didn't know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness I pray that your word would do what it does, that it would come with might and with power as it's living and active. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us and speak to our hearts through your word, that it would be truth that is implanted into our lives, that's not in one ear and out the other, but it would be deeply rooted in us and it would produce a change in us. It's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray, amen. When we look at this passage, you see the entrance of John the Baptist. And um, I love talking about John the Baptist because he is so atypical of so many of what we might think of as religious leaders. There are five different Johns in the New Testament. There's John the Baptist, who we're gonna speak about today, the forerunner of Christ. There's John the Apostle, or sometimes called John the Evangelist, who wrote this book, and also the author of um, his epistles, first, second, and third John, and then also the book of Revelation. Several other Johns, there's John Mark, who wrote uh, the Gospel of Mark, cousin of Barnabas. Peter's dad, Simon Peter's dad is also named John, but this John stands kind of out in the forefront because Jesus said of John the Baptist that there was no greater man born of woman. No greater man. Of course, Jesus in a category all to himself, but what a statement for Jesus to make about his cousin John the Baptist. In Luke 7, he says, I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John, And so we see John the Baptist. A few verses before this in verse six of John chapter one were introduced to him. There was a man sent from from, from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And so he enters the the scene and he's causing a bit of a, Ruckus out in the wilderness. And he's a unique guy. This is not a guy that has, uh, is wearing khakis and a button-up shirt, you know, speaking seminary talk. No, this guy is wild. I just like picture him in my mind like wearing a Jedi robe and riding a Harley. Um, and he hadn't washed his hair in several weeks. It says that he ate uh, bugs and honey for his uh, That's That's the kind of man that John the Baptist is. He's yelling at people to repent and to be baptized. And yet he's the greatest man who ever lived. So I want to look at John a little bit about what made him so great. The angel announced before John was even be born that he would be great before the Lord. And he was great not because of his own actions but because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And because he ran the race of God that God had put before him. Today's passage tells us many things. I'd like to focus on these two things. Two things about John and two things about Jesus. And then we'll close with a little application. First thing about John, John led with humility. To set the scene, they're in the wilderness it says that they're in a place called Bethany but distinguishes it not from the Bethany that Mary and Martha lived at that was real close to Jerusalem though no, this is on the east side of Jordan this would have been quite a trek out in the wilderness the NIV says the desert and John's out there in this mostly uninhabited desertscape kind of place where people are living in caves And he's baptizing people, and evidently a large gathering has surrounded John enough to word gets back to the Pharisees, this text tells us, and they sent the priests and the Levites, kind of like the temple police, to go and check out if this guy is legit or not. What is wrong Uh, With this guy, John, we need to see if if it, because he didn't come up through the ranks like most. He didn't follow a certain rabbi and go to all the schools. No, this guy had godly parents, but he was kind of raised outside of that system. And so they, they send the temple police to investigate and ask him. It says in verse 19, when the Jews sent the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed, did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, no, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. There was prophecy from the Old Testament that there would be one that would come, Elijah, who never died. How about this? Elijah was taken from the earth in this chariot, right, right into heaven and There was one that was coming like Elijah, the prophet of the Old Testament would say, and they thought, well, maybe this is him. And so they go and ask, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, no, are you the prophet? There was another prophecy that this great prophet would come before the coming Messiah. And they're asking him again and again, we wanna know who you are. The first thing about John I want to focus on is he led with humility. This is a guy with a pretty big stage with a lot of followers. In the next passage, even his own disciples are going to be there helping him, his ministry assistants, getting all the people organized to be baptized, maybe checking, you know, kind of making sure their statements were valid. And then Jesus walks by and John points at Jesus and says, there is the Lamb of God. And John encouraged his own disciples to go and follow after Jesus. John led with humility When he had a stage, when he had people inquiring of him, him, when he had grown a large crowd, he didn't take that spotlight onto himself. He passed it to Jesus. He was focused on Jesus. He was leading with humility. When they ask him, well, then who are you? He says, I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. He's given the stage, but he takes the humble road, not denying that he has gifts, not denying that he has a prominent role in the ministry of Christ. As humility has been defined, it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. He could have used this stage to earn a lot of money, to get a lot of pedigree, but instead he remains humble. He led with humility. The root word for humility used here actually means to know your place. Not to be self-deprecating, not to deny the fact that God has gifted you with many talents and abilities, but also this understanding that this whole life is not about you. Skip down with me to verse 26, they ask him if he's the Christ or Elijah or the prophet, and John answered them, no, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not not worthy to untie. And that day, as you can imagine, these people wearing open-toed sandals, often there's no place that you can go by just you know no 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 shoe store to go get these things and so they were passed down in the family they're walking on dirt roads with all the animals and you can imagine what that would look like and one of the commentators I read I think it was Luther he said it probably smelled like Satan's breath right (laughs) that's nasty and there was a tradition that as a leader would have followers or disciples that would come beside them, behind them to learn and they were kind of their ministry assistants and they would do anything except law prevented them from untying the strap of the sandal that their master was wearing. So the disciples couldn't do that. That was the job for the slave and not even a Jewish slave. Even a Jewish slave would not even do that. That was, I mean, that was the most menial a task that you could do and basically this is what john is saying the, th- the straps of whose sandals i'm not even worthy to untie i'm not even i'm not even worthy in and of my own righteousness to be a slave to the messiah he took this place of humility always never made it about himself you know the life of John was a difficult one found himself in prison but never forsake the call that God had placed upon his life here he describes himself as just the voice in the wilderness the second thing I want you to see about John the thing that made him so great was that he pointed people to Jesus that was just his natural posture he was always pointing people to Jesus when attention came his way he pointed to Jesus as great as John, John was and his and any greatness he knew that any greatness that he had came from Jesus again in John 1 and verse 8 it says that he was not the light but he came to bear witness about the light He was the mirror that reflected the light of God into the prominent place. And this is what John does again and again. In verse 22 they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? They're pressing and pressing and pressing. I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. This is a figure of speech about preparing the road for a king's arrival if a king or the emperor was going to come visit your little small town for some reason you would get months notice ahead and without a real road system every all hands on deck we got to make the path smooth for the king their emperor's coming to visit us we got to all work together so he has a path a wide path in which that he can travel so that he may arrive And this is the figure of speech that John uses here, calling himself basically the road builder for one greater than he who would follow him with fuller revelation. As As I... Isaiah said that the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it in chapter 40, verse five. This glory was revealed in the person of Jesus of whom the writer of the gospel said, we have seen his glory in verse 14. Now this is a very literal meaning for John. He is the forerunner of Jesus himself. But this has an implied meaning for us. And friends, I wanna I want us to get this truth, the greatest thing that God will ever use you for, I mean the greatest, is that our lives would point to the glory of God in all things. The greatest thing that God will ever use you for, think about your role as a mom or a dad or a friend or daughter or son, your occupation as a teacher or a plumber or an architect. Your place in society and how you serve the community you're in and all of those things, the greatest thing that God will ever use you for is that you would point to the glory of God in the most simplest of tasks. It's not that you have to do something great. It's that the things that you do point to the glory of God in everything. The way you work is not even unto yourself but unto God, the way That you raise your kids. is not even about your own parenting. You raise them unto the glory of God. The way that you celebrate and have parties and the way that you're a neighbor and the way that you handle difficulty and the way that you suffer, all of that should be this directional pointing to God. Titus would say it this way, so that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God the Savior. Basically, everything we do is to adorn the gospel, that our lives would be little display cases of grace that the watching world would look at us and see that there's something so different about the Christian. And just as a quick warning for us, friends, most of us lose track of this. We make life about us. We make life about everything but this one thing. We make life about our comfort. We make life about our career. We make life about our kids. We make life about our dreams. We make life about all these things. And we never walk or live in real peace or joy or lasting satisfaction. Because we were made by God to point back to him. To glorify him in everything we do. How we suffer. How we handle success how we walk through disappointment, how we handle hard seasons, how we handle mistreatment. There's always a chance that we would adorn the gospel of God with our lives. If you haven't noticed, our culture is moving further and further away from God. We mentioned this a little yesterday, kicking him out of everything. I feel there's a sense we've even kicked him out of the church itself because we want to manage how things go and ultimately we want to make things about us. Don't we? We want to make things about us. I grew up in a pastor's home and I remember these time to time these ugly business meetings that we would have and there would be power factions in the church that would try to you know direct the way the church was going and influence the pastor so that he would make a decision that would be pleasing to them and if he didn't want to make that decision then they would gather some support with other people around them and they would basically have a coup of sorts well we're gonna go and we're gonna go take our money and go somewhere else as if what they wanted was the reason the church was there Friends, if you just need a reminder, this whole life is not about you. It's not about me. This is about the glory of God. And all that we do, that we would be a reflection to the glory of God. We've got a chance in this political season to be a real reflection to the glory of God. We've got a chance with the middle of the pandemic that we can really reflect the glory of God to the watching world. You ever been mistreated? Anyone ever spread rumors about you? Anyone said mean things about you? I'm not saying you've got to be a doormat, but what an incredible opportunity to display to the watching world, to your coworkers, to those around you, that we would point to the glory of God in all things. John always pointed people to Jesus. Verse 29, it says, the next day John was standing with his, I'm sorry, verse 29, I jumped ahead. The next day, Jesus, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Calling out with a loud voice, behold, would you look at him, the Lamb of God. Don't look at me, this is not about me, this is about Jesus. Listen up, people, look at Jesus who takes away the sins of the whole world. And this is what made John great. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He lived his life in service to others. He led with humility and he pointed people to Jesus in all things. He yields to the father's leading throughout the course of his life. So if the father wants him to go here, he goes there. If the father ask him to do this he walks in obedience the father convicts of sin and he repents the father teaches him he learns this is what it means to be yielded to the father as the father God our father corrects we change to be yielded and submitted to the direction of God and that's the Christian life this is a life like Jesus John's life is a life like Jesus it's selfless it's big it's passionate it's humble it's truthful and bold it suffers for the glory of God and the good of others a great life like John's is patterned after Jesus empowered by the spirit and led by God the father and this is who John is Let me tell you two things about Jesus. Two things about John, two things about Jesus. The first thing is in the same verse we just read there in verse 29. What does John say of Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He had been talking about the coming Messiah. Verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself didn't know him. This word know here means experientially know him. I didn't know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, you know, John was the cousin of Jesus. How, we were been talking about this this morning with Jeff as we were praying for our service that God would move in a mighty way we were asking this very question isn't it weird that John says I didn't even know Jesus and as I studied this week he's not saying that he didn't know Jesus his cousin it was very likely that they would see together see each other at family gatherings or family reunions but what he's saying here is I did not know Jesus the Messiah at this point Jesus had not revealed the full extent of what he came to do and John just knew him as cousin Jesus who never got in trouble right <laughs> who did everything right, who set the curve on everything. But now he's introduced as Jesus the Messiah. And he gives a little commentary here. And John bore witness in verse 32, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This word he uses here to describe him the first word is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. I feel like we should just celebrate that very thought. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. This phrase is loaded with multiple meanings. When he called him the Lamb of God. Certainly they're getting closer to Passover. And that may have been where immediately his hearers. Their mind would go. Think about the Passover Lamb. Symbolizing the deliverance of the Hebrew people from Egypt. You remember this? That An evil Pharaoh had risen up and didn't remember Joseph and the blessing of the Israel people. And God sent Moses to declare deliverance on them and bring them out into the promised land. And the Pharaoh stood up against God and said, I will not bow to this God. And there's this duel between Pharaoh and God. And of course, God's going to win that 10 out of 10 times. And he gave Pharaoh the opportunity to repent and he gave him warnings through plagues, one after another, after another, giving him time to repent, giving him time to align his own mind and heart with God. But Pharaoh resisted. He would not do that. And so the last plague came, the angel of death that would come and the firstborn of every home would die. I'm a firstborn, and think about waking up one morning to the firstborn being dead in your own home. What a tragic thing that is. And people ask, well, who who is this God that would allow such things? But when you read the actual story, there was moment after moment opportunity for repentance. And even there, there's a warning, hey, the, the death angel is coming, and there's a way that you can... Avoid death and that's to take a blameless or spotless lamb and sacrifice that lamb and the blood which comes from that lamb that you would to paint it on the doorpost of your home and then that night when the angel of death is to come through then he's going to pass over your home. There was salvation available and many people who weren't Jews took them up on this, scripture Labels them as the God-fearers and they were always camped just kind of right outside of Israel. And they fled Egypt even that next day as well. And so they would remember as Passover got closer, they would have a meal. We talk about this in the Last Supper so often. We're going to celebrate it in communion here in a little bit. They would have the Passover meal. And certainly that's what they were thinking of. John said, hey, there's the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world and they're thinking about the Passover lamb from Exodus 12. They might also be thinking about the animal in the thicket. Remember that in Genesis 22? Abraham and Isaac go up the mountain to sacrifice unto God and yet they bring no animal. And Isaac looks back at... Abraham and says where is the sacrifice and God provided an animal caught in the thicket many would have thought about the continual sacrifices Exodus 29 talks about the continual this daily offering in the temple of a lamb that would be slain in the morning and in the evening and this happened every day as this constant atoning sacrifice for the sin of the people As John the Baptist, you can kind of see him in the water and all the crowds are gathered around and Jesus walks by and he points that finger, behold, the Lamb of God. And this was a light bulb moment for John revealed by the Holy Spirit. The reason why our firstborn didn't die the night of the Passover was because God was offering up his own firstborn to take our place. He's coming to take upon himself the sins of the whole world. This passage so closely connected to Isaiah 53. You remember this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity or the sin of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. John is pointing toward the coming atoning work of Christ and he doesn't even know it in its fullness yet. Who, by one final sacrifice of himself, Jesus would remove the guilt and sin and open a way for us to be reconciled to God. And John the Baptist, in his limited understanding, is introducing us to Jesus this way, declaring that only Jesus could take away the sin of the whole world. And this is why Jesus came. He came to deal with the sin of the whole world, not just some selected group of people, the sin of the whole world. Every race and nation and tongue and dialect, we look at the book of Revelation and we see all of these groups of people surrounding the throne of God, their presence there made possible with this very act that Jesus would come to do life on this earth, to give his life as a sacrifice, to take upon him the sin of the world. Behold, he says, the Lamb of God. Friends, the greatest thing that we can do today, the greatest thing that I can remind you of today, the greatest thing that I can remind myself of today is to point your direction to the Lamb of God who rightfully deals with your sin. All the things we do and the music and the setup and the people who got here really early and the breakfast that they had for the lady, all these things that we do and the people who are watching kids and and they're loving those kids well and they're teaching them these great Bible stories, it all culminates in this point so that all of us could be reminded once again, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the whole world. He's the Lamb of God. But not just that, he's the son of God. Look, look further down. In verse 34, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now John is baptizing here with water. And they ask him, John, who gives you the authority to baptize with water? And it was customary in that day if a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism they would be baptized with water as a ritual of purification. And if a Jew wanted to, what we would call, rededicate their life, maybe they had wandered off the path, they wanted to rededicate their life to the God of the Bible and to enter back into pious living, then they would baptize themselves in the water. And here's John in the Jordan He's baptizing, not Gentiles converting to the faith. No, he's baptizing the Jews. And he's baptizing with water. It's a baptism of repentance. It's a baptism of an acknowledgement of sin. It's a baptism of an awareness that I need someone greater to deal with my own inadequacies and shortcomings to deal with my sin. John says, it's he who comes that will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Remember in John 1, verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father. And John is there to be a voice in the wilderness pointing us to Jesus. He is the word made flesh. He is the one. 165 times through the New Testament, Jesus calls God his father. In John 5 verse 17, Jesus would say of himself that he was with God. He was God. The word son is used for the first time in John's gospel as a title of Jesus Christ here in verse this passage, verse 18, remember that John had this in his purpose in writing us to convince us that Jesus was the Son of God. At least 19 times, Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. Mark 3 and Luke 4 tells us that even the demons believe that he was the Son of God. Son of God, which conveys all the power and prestige and honor that such a name meant. He was the Son of God. This is why it's such a big deal that John the Baptist's message about Jesus was that he was the Lamb of God and the Son of God. As a way to describe to us how salvation would come to earth. And how did he come? As the son of God, you would expect to him to come in a royal parade, right? Riding on the victor's horse. Coming to do away with evil forever. In all his regality as the son of God, he certainly could have done that. We see the picture of him on the cross. It says even at a moment that he could have called down legions of 10,000s of angels. Yet he didn't. Isaiah said he would come like a sheep, silent before its shearers. A lamb led to the slaughter. This is what Tim Keller calls the oxymoron of God. It's his strong weakness. It's the lamb who is the lion and the lion-like lamb. It's the lamb who is king The messianic king coming in meekness, in apparent weakness. If Jesus would have come in strength the first time to do away with evil, that meant that he he would have to do away with us because all of us have evil in our hearts. And so he didn't come the first time as the conquering king to do away with evil. No, he came as the suffering servant to destroy, to take upon the sin of the world upon his own shoulders. So that we could have access to the family of God, the forgiveness of God. And when he returns, he will destroy all evil at that point and save us at the same time. It's this incredible picture of the salvation of our great God. Friends, your need this morning, your greatest need is reconciliation to God. Your sin has separated you from your maker and any source of joy like like a fish out of water. You might turn to things to numb the pain, but nothing will bring lasting satisfaction until you find the water itself, until you find rest in your relationship with God, that he was the lamb of God who came as the suffering servant, that he would be crucified in your place and bestow upon you the title as a son of God. Sons and daughters. And until you come to that fact, that realization, and Christians in here who've walked with God for 20 years, may this be a reminder of your identity, that God loved you so much that he would leave and bankrupt heaven itself. Scripture says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Well, how do you get it? How do you get this reconciliation with God? You behold, that's what John the Baptist says, behold, look at him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. And you would trust in the Son of God that his claims were not just from a crazy person, but he was God himself come to deliver us. And that he had the power to do that very thing and that you would receive the Holy Spirit this morning to lead you, to guide you. Friends, the greatest thing we can become is like John the Baptist, a voice announcing from the wilderness that there's a better way. There's a better way. It had been several hundred years since God had spoken to man through that intertestamental period. Darkness was everywhere. Evil was winning. God's very people just had this bloody ritual of sacrificing lambs every day just to appease the wrath of God toward them. And John, he didn't know the full picture of it yet, but there he is announcing, behold, the Lamb of God. Friends, this is the greatest privilege that we have as believers. Just as John was a voice announcing from the wilderness, hey, you're a voice announcing from your neighborhood, a voice announcing from your workplace, a voice Crying out through social media and text messages and calling people. That's what we're supposed to do. We're a voice crying out, Behold the Lamb of God. Not just in lip service, but because our lives have been radically changed by the love of God. And because He has so generously loved us, He enables us through the Holy Spirit to radically love other people. We can become a voice announcing from the dark places of the world that there's a better way. There's a better way. My prayer this morning is that we would have a renewed call upon our lives to be announcers or evangelists of the better way. There's not a person I talked to this week who didn't talk about how difficult life is right now. The things they're asking our teachers to do, they are overwhelmed. The one phrase I hear every teacher I've talked to, talked to 10 or 12 of them this week, they'll just say, you know, I almost quit this week. I quit again this week. It like every job there is. It's just harder to do right now in the midst of a pandemic and people are losing their jobs. Real difficulty seems to be either already arrived at our home or on the horizon. And this gentle whisper of the Holy Spirit to us is this, where do you put the light? But in the middle of the darkness and God has strategically placed us there teachers God has strategically placed you in that room in that classroom with all these little kids and faculty looking at you not so that you can flex your teaching muscles no but through the way that you carry yourself that you would adorn the gospel of God and everything that we do we would be like John the Baptist a voice Announcing from our corner of the world there's a better way in his name's Jesus. Let me pray for us. We're going to take communion here in a minute, but I just want to give you some time to, right where you're at, would you ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you? Maybe there's sin in your life. It's, It's time to confess those things to him. Receive his forgiveness in full. Maybe you've been given a stage and you're using it for your own good and glory. Seeking comfort or prestige. And yet God's reminder this morning is that everything that we've been given we're, we're a steward of. That we would use any means that we have to point people to Jesus. Got to be some of you walking through, and I've talked to some of you just walking through the most difficult season of your life. Whether it be work or your health or your marriage, your family, your kids dealing with issues, it just feels like you are just in the desert. Friends, I want you to know that God's with you. He's a plan for you in the desert. I find it strange that John is in the middle of the desert announcing with a loud voice there's a better way and it's Jesus. Holy Spirit, I pray that you speak to our hearts this morning. Remind us of our identity in you. Sons and daughters of the great king, for those that have put their faith and trust in you, for those in this room who are on the outside looking in, they don't know what it's like to be part of the family of God, I pray they would take a step today to behold you as the lamb who gave your life for our sin, but also as the regal king who adopts us into his family. Pray that our hope would rise, that we would be encouraged to walk through difficulty, pointing others to you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7 says that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. When Jesus came and was gathered with his disciples on the night that he was to be betrayed, he had the last supper with those disciples and he told them that they should continue to do this every time they met together. And so that's what we do. If you've got a little cup there in front of you. For more than 2,000 years, the church that met under the banner of Jesus Christ would do this in their gathering. There's a little wafer in there representing the body of Christ that was beaten and bruised and hung upon a cross and he did it for us. Pray with me. God, thank you for your body given for our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. You can take the bread and partake. And then the juice representing the salvific blood of Christ spilled for us. God, thank you for your blood. As the hymn says, the fountain filled with Blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Partake of the juice. We're going to sing here in a minute. I encourage you to rejoice in all that God has done. If you'd like to pray with someone, it'll be me and a few others in the back. Listen, if God's moving your heart and you'd just like to tell somebody about it, you're up against. We're walking through a hardship. You'd like somebody to pray for you. Please take us up. We'll be standing in the back. It'll be such a joy to pray for you, and we'll sing together.